Welcome to Sex Savvy, where nothing is off limits. I'm Kimberly Resnick Anderson, your host and creator of Sex Savvy. I've been helping couples and individuals achieve optimal sexual health for more than 25 years. I am ready to share my unique insights and sex positive approach with the world. We'll talk about hang ups, kinks, fantasies, and function, what's hot, what's not, and most importantly, how to become sex savvy. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Sex Savvy. I'm your host, Kimberly Resnick Anderson. I just want to start this episode with a formal trigger warning. This episode does contain graphic material and specific details about actual murder cases involving sexual torture and necrophilia. If you think you might be upset by this material, this episode of Sex Savvy may not be for you. Every once in a while, you meet someone who has a profound effect, not only on your work, but on your entire life. My guest today is one of those people. His professional body of work, his integrity, and his work ethic are known throughout the world. He is a forensic psychiatrist who has written prolifically about legal insanity as a criminal defense and many other aspects of psychiatry and law. He is an expert witness who has consulted on or testified in many of the most infamous murder trials of the past 35 years. He is a beloved professor and presenter who has been invited to give lectures in more than 25 countries. I've been fortunate to attend some of his trainings in Europe, Asia, and Africa, as well as many here in the United States. When there is a mass shooting, a serial killer is on the loose, or a mother murders her own children, my guest is always on the shortlist to be contacted for his expertise. In fact, he is the world authority on mothers who kill their own children, and even coined the term neonaticide, which is when a mother kills her newborn within the first 24 hours of life. It is such an honor to interview my distinguished guest today. Let's get sex savvy. I have a very special guest today on sex savvy. It's Dr. Philip Resnick who is a professor of psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. And he has published over 200 articles and book chapters in the field of forensic psychiatry. He has testified or consulted in many major national murder trials, including the Unabomber, the Susan Smith trial, the Andrea Yates trial, you may remember a woman in Texas who drowned her five children in a bathtub. He also testified in the Oklahoma City trial with Timothy McVie. He consulted in the James Holmes trial. You may recall the shooting at the movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. So he's definitely someone that is brought in to offer his expertise and opinion in any sort of major mass murder or serial killer type of situation. And I'm so thrilled to have him on my show. He also happens to be my dad. So welcome, Dr. Resnick. Welcome, Dad, to Sex Savvy. My pleasure. <laughs> okay. 
People often ask me what was the inspiration for me to go into this at times dark field. And certainly, Dad, your work has influenced me in a profound way. So I thought it would be fair to get you in the hot seat and talk about your work so others can appreciate how it might have influenced me and what your contributions have been to the field, which are certainly many. So today I want to focus on aspects of sexual torture and how there are some themes and traits that are common between some of these criminals. And I'm hoping that you can shed some light on that. I think today we will focus on a couple of major cases. And I would invite you to share about your role and also your insights into some of these crimes. So are you ready to go? I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. Let's start by talking about the infamous Jeffrey Dahmer. Well, Jeffrey Dahmer, as you may recall, in the 1990s, was convicted of killing a great many men who had been picked up by him in homosexual relationships, such as at bathhouses and gay bars. And he was someone who actually grew up near the Cleveland area and then moved to Wisconsin. He had a particular need of a certain type of victim where they had a certain kind of a slender body that he was excited by. And his goal was to engage in sexual behavior just the way he wanted to, to be excited. And sometimes when he would pick up partners in a gay bar, they would want to have sex the way they wanted to. So he began putting a sleeping pill in their drink, crushed up. They wouldn't know about it then he could have sex with them while they were unconscious the way he wanted to. And however, some of them woke up, realized they'd been drugged and beat Dahmer up. So he decided that in order to have perfect control while they were unconscious, he drilled a small hole in the top of their skull because he'd heard of like chemical lobotomies. He poured weak hydrochloric acid into the skull with the goal of having like a living zombie where he could control them. Unfortunately, when he did that, they would develop infections in the brain and die within two or three days. But rather than waste a good body, he would continue to have sex with them, cut them up. For example, he would take a penis and preserve it on a little plaque and continue to have sex with the dead body. So in fact, in his defense, Dr. Fred Berlin from Johns Hopkins testified that he was legally insane because he had the diagnosis of necrophilia and was unable to control his sexual drive. So there was a contested insanity defense and the jury did reject insanity and he was convicted, went to prison, and was eventually killed by other prisoners in prison. So you testified for the prosecution Actually, I consulted for the prosecution, but did not give testimony. Okay. And your position, your opinion was that he was not legally insane? That's correct. And that's what ended up being found by the court? Yes. And just to give you a little more of my thinking on that, even someone who has necrophilia, which is a sexual attraction to corpses, may have a strong need to carry out those acts. But rather than kill human beings, Some will work in morgues 
and have sex with dead bodies, or they'll be a funeral assistant, or some even dig up bodies that have been buried. So there's not a need to actually kill people to satisfy yourself as a necrophiliac. I think when people hear the name Jeffrey Dahmer, they kind of shudder. I think the range of interests that he had and the way that he carried out his crimes were so disturbing to so many people, like a a horrific nightmare. Would you agree that Jeffrey Dahmer was one of the most disturbed people you've come across? Or would you say you've met, you know, dozens of people at that level of disturbance? Well, Jeffrey Dahmer was not actually psychotic. He was clearly in touch with reality. He was able to cover his tracks. He knew what he was doing. He simply had a particular sexual drive. He was bright enough, a little above average intelligence. And he, for example, chose people, gay men or teenagers, to pick up who would be least likely to be missed and have major police investigations. He was very strategic and predatory. Right. So he would take people who were immigrants or runaways where they wouldn't be missed. So he Didn't wasn't... he also kidnap some people? No. He would get them to his home voluntarily, and that's when he would seek to take complete control of them. And he had these interests quite early. For example, he had sex with a dog and dissected a dog as a teenager and had these interests, and his first killing was before he graduated high school. That aligns with my clinical work. All of the men that I've treated with paraphilia have had those interests prior to puberty. And there's a lifelong, deeply ingrained arousal template that is consistent over time. And men are able to talk about memories and reactions to things from when they were six or nine or 12 years old. And there's a thematic presence throughout their entire development. Yes, I'd agree. Okay, so let's move on and talk about Ted Bundy. I know right now there's a documentary that's airing that's popular. People are talking about. What is your sense of Ted Bundy? Ted Bundy was a classic individual who enjoyed sexual sadism, enjoyed having his partners completely under his control and in the raping and killing. And again, he was very bright, attended law school, but did not graduate. And one of the clever things he did was he would pretend to have a broken arm. He would have an arm in a sling. So he seemed quite vulnerable, and women would feel like they'd want to do him a favor and assist him. He also happened to be handsome and charming. Absolutely, absolutely. So he is someone who was a classic serial murderer. The bulk of serial murderers in the United States are sexually motivated. Okay. And what happened to him? He was ultimately convicted in Florida, and he did a lot of negotiating, trying to say, I'll tell you where other bodies are buried if you take the death penalty off the table, and arranged a number of delays and appeals, but ultimately was executed in the state of Florida. Mm. Okay. You consulted on the Elizabeth Smart case. You gave an opinion as to the man, Brian Mitchell, who kidnapped her, correct? I was a consultant to the defense attorneys, yes. Can you speak about that case, please? Well, I think, again, people may recall in the media, 
Elizabeth Smart was a young teenager, about 14 or 15, when she was kidnapped out of her own home. Her sister was actually in the same room, and the kidnapper came into her home, you know, covered her mouth and took her out. He had stalked her, he had observed her. He was a variation of Mormon. He had his own ideas that he could have multiple wives, and his wife participated with him in the abduction and holding her for several years. And she finally had an opportunity to escape and did so. So he repeatedly raped her. Of course, he tried to rationalize it as it was within his authority as a religious figure that he could have multiple wives. But there is substantial evidence that he simply was using her for his own sexual purposes. Okay. And was there any ritualistic component to this? I don't recall any rituals. Again, he forced her to engage in sexual activities that pleased him. I think what was unusual for most situations is the wife being a participant, but she was brainwashed. She was also convicted as well as the perpetrator, but she was given less time because she was more of a facilitator, but didn't engage in any misconduct herself. So you work and practice in the Cleveland area. Yes. And there was a very big, disturbing case a few years ago about a man who was keeping women chained in the basement and having sexual relations with them for years. And you evaluated him, correct? Yes. Ariel Castro lived in the Cleveland area, and he actually kidnapped three separate women, and he added you know, each of them to the basement. They weren't serial, they were concomitant. And one of them he impregnated and had a baby. And Mr. Castro became very attached to the little girl who was about six years old when he was eventually captured. And he had them literally chained in the basement and he would just choose which one on a given night he would elect to have sex with. And he's another person that had complete rationalizations, rather than acknowledge that they were fearful of him, he would say that the women fought over who would have the opportunity to have sex with him on a particular night. And do you think he believed his rationalizations? I think to some extent he did, but he grossly exaggerated. And as you know, it's not uncommon, for example, for pedophiles to have their thoughts altered and they come to believe that even a six-year-old boy could consent so that they don't see themselves as being abusive. And there's actually an organization called the Man-Boy Love Society. NAMBLA. Which is for the purpose of others getting together to, again, rationalize their pedophilic behavior as not being destructive to children, which of course it is. And you evaluated Castro personally? Yes. And how did he come across to you? What were your observations and sort of reaction to him? He was, uh, again, he told me, I'm not a monster. I know the press is portraying me as a monster. And he came across as a gentle, nondescript, kind of middle-aged guy. There was nothing menacing about him. He wasn't particularly charming. And I think that's one of the reasons he may have kidnapped the women, is that he 
in ordinary dating scene would not have been particularly successful. What do you know about the incel movement? Well, incel you know, refers to often young men who attempt dating and for one reason or another are repeatedly rejected by women and they can be very angry at women feeling that they are treated unfairly. And there have been two cases of mass murders by individuals who are very angry at feminism and angry at women overall. One was in Canada and one was in California. And they use these thoughts to rationalize killing women? Yes, whether you want to call it rationalization. In other words, rather than recognize they're bringing something to the situation as to why they are being rejected, they see the feminist movement or women as being unreasonable or unfair, that they should be more available as marriage partners, as sexual partners. And then obviously there's a lot more insults than there are people who go around killing women. So it's a small minority who are so upset by their situation that they actually become violent to women. Okay, let's talk about the Casey Anthony trial. Casey Anthony was a woman in Florida whose two-year-old daughter died, and she, the mother, was an extraordinary liar, is the part that struck me most. She repeatedly lied, and one example is that she said she worked at a given place, and the police went to this place, and the employer said, no, we never had her work there. And Casey Anthony said, oh, you must have gone to the wrong location. So they said, okay, we'll take you with us. You show us exactly where it was that you worked. So she got in the police car, went to the location, went to the door, and then she turned around and said to the police, I lied, I never worked here. And so there were just many, many a web of lies like that. But ultimately, it was not proven beyond a reasonable doubt that she was guilty of the homicide of her child, even though the public was very much believed that she had something to do with it. And do you agree? I really, you know, I was a consultant to the defense and read records, but I didn't personally interview her, so I have insufficient data to offer a formal opinion like that. Speaking of lies, you testified in the Susan Smith trial, the woman who claimed that her boys had been kidnapped and ultimately was found that she had killed them. I actually didn't testify in that trial, but I did evaluate Susan Smith for eight hours for the defense. And Susan Smith was going through a divorce. It's actually quite an interesting story. She was going through a divorce and she was worked in this very small town in South Carolina, Union, South Carolina. The largest employer had 400 employees, and there was a big boss who owned the company, and his son was like middle management. She slept with the big boss one time, and it didn't go anywhere. And then a little later, she got involved in a relationship with his son, who was in middle management. They had a relationship for a few weeks, and she very much loved him and wanted to make a life with him. Then she did a dumb thing. So this is some advice to your female listeners. <laughs> she told the son 
that she had slept with his father. Not a good idea. <laughs> and as a result of that, the son said, that's it, I can't deal with this, the relationship is over. And it was that day when he said the relationship is over that she became so depressed, she decided to take her own life. She thought about running into a bridge in a one-car accident. Then she thought about her two young children who would go with her separated husband and felt he wouldn't be a good father. And she decided to take the children with her. And she ultimately decided she would drive into a lake and all three of them would drown. As they were going into the lake, she lost her nerve, jumped out of the car, and the two children who were strapped in their car seats did drown. Then she made up a story that she was carjacked by a black man in Union, and she cried on television, had the whole country concerned about the welfare, and she begged this man to bring back her children. And this hoax went on for about 10 days. Then the police chief, who was very suspicious that she was involved but had no evidence, decided to lie to her and make up a story. And he alleged that there had been a video camera where she said she was hijacked because it was a high drug buying area. So he then told her, we have a videotape. We checked the tape on the day you say you were, high, you were carjacked. We know it didn't happen. What really happened? And that's when Susan Smith confessed. Wow. And a few hours later, she said, was there really a camera there? And he said, no, there wasn't. But by that time, they knew what lake, and then they dragged the lake and found the bodies of the two children. And she attempted an insanity defense, correct? She was evaluated by me for an insanity defense, but the defense attorneys recognized that they were very unlikely to be successful, and she was indicted on death penalty. So the defense decided to put all its effort into making her sympathetic and mitigating circumstances so that she would not get the death penalty. So rather than trying an insanity defense, they brought in all their mental health testimony on the issue of she's not worthy of getting the death penalty. Her husband testified he wanted her to get the death penalty, her separated husband. But the upshot was that she was found guilty, sentenced to life, but did not get the death penalty. A little postscript here is that she managed to get pregnant by a corrections officer while she was in prison. Speaking of mothers who kill their children, you were a pivotal witness in the Andrea Yates trial. Can you speak about that? Yes, Andrea Yates was a nurse in a cancer hospital, Anderson Hospital in Houston, Texas. She was received high ratings in her work, was a very sympathetic empathetic person. She had five children with her husband, Rusty, who was an engineer, and she had bipolar illness. She had emotional reactions, psychiatric problems after her third and fourth child. Her treating psychiatrist said, don't have more children. Once you have postpartum depressions twice, it's very likely to affect you. But due to her husband being strongly religious, and literally believing in be fruitful and multiply, they decided to have a fifth child. They had the fifth child. She had a serious depression with delusional ideas. And the delusional ideas were that 
First of all, she was deeply religious and believed that the age of 10 was the age of accountability and that if her children continued on their paths at age 10, they would literally end up in hell. And she believed that it would be better for her children to be with God for all eternity by taking their lives before the age of 10. She had a delusion that her oldest son would be a serial killer, another son would be a mute homosexual prostitute, and she had very psychotic beliefs about how each of her children was going to end up in hell, even her six-month-old daughter. So she drowned her five children. She did it lovingly. For example, the five-year-old son was a particularly good big brother to the six-month-old baby girl. So when she drowned each child and then placed them on her bed, she placed the six-month-old girl in the crook of the arm of the five-year-old brother so he would look after her in heaven. She did go to trial with an insanity defense, and the first jury rejected the insanity defense by a vote of 10 to 2 and then convicted her but did not sentence her to death. Due to an error by a prosecution psychiatrist, the Texas Court of Appeals overturned the verdict and there was a second trial. At that point, she was no longer tried with death penalty specifications. And in the second trial, the jury found her not guilty by reason of insanity. So she remains in a psychiatric hospital in Texas at this time. You were one of the first people to evaluate her in jail? Yes, I saw her within three weeks of the crime itself. So she was still in the same mental state as when she killed her children. The prosecution expert didn't see her until five months later, and by that time she was tearful and realized that she had needlessly killed her children because she was no longer psychotic after treatment. Do you have emotional reactions to these cases, or do you have very good boundaries? I actually have a particular interest in child murder by parents, and I've seen like maybe 80 cases. So there is no, there's nothing worse than a child dying before a parent. So anytime a child dies before a parent, it is a terrible loss. In fact, there is a name if a child loses their parents, they're an orphan. If a woman loses her husband, she's a widow. But there is no word for parents who lose a child because it's unspeakable in a sense. So losing a child is terrible. If you lose a child to suicide, it's much worse because the parents beat themselves up. They should have seen it coming. What did they do? And then the ultimate experience for a parent is to be the instrument of your own child's death. So these women have a very hard time forgiving themselves and going on with their lives, and some do commit suicide. So because of working with this group in particular, they are often very emotional, they're tragic situations. So I think that I, through the years, working with mass murderers, serial murderers, and child killers, have developed a thicker skin where I don't become as emotional as, for example, people I take in training with me have a much stronger reaction, but I, at this point, am somewhat less emotional. Somewhat desensitized? Yes, somewhat desensitized. Frederick Nietzsche 
said, he who fights monsters must be careful not to become a monster himself. And so I think about that, but it's too late for me. (laughs) (laughs) I often share that when I would go to sleep at night, I would hear you dictating your murder cases, and I called it lullabies of murder. And you would be very specific in your descriptions of how a particular defendant or uh, alleged perpetrator murdered someone and what he did sexually to his victims. And I remember being pretty disturbed and frightened and traumatized by hearing those things at such a young age. Yeah, well, I'm sorry to hear that because I didn't dictate those cases with you in the room, but I was unaware that you might have been upstairs listening. Of course, of course. Getting back to the topic of sexual torture, There's a very interesting case decided by the Canadian Supreme Court. And uh, in the United States, there is a case called the Tarasoff case, which says that mental health professionals have a duty to take steps to protect a victim once they know that their patient they're treating intends to do serious harm to someone. And the case in Canada, which is similar to this case in the United States, is called Smith v. Jones. And what happened was in Vancouver, Canada, there was a man who was charged with assaulting a prostitute and she escaped. He tried to kidnap her, was attempted kidnapping and assault. The psychiatrist was hired, a forensic psychiatrist was hired by the defense attorney. Can you evaluate this man and see if you can be helpful in mitigating factors to try and get a lesser sentence. The psychiatrist evaluated the man, and he was extremely open. And he said, I have prepared a torture chamber in the basement of my home with shackles and chains, and my intention is to kidnap prostitutes, have sex with them, torture them, and kill them. And this was my first effort, but she happened to escape. But he clearly was a sexual sadist who had prepared and planned to carry out multiple killings. So the psychiatrist said to the defense attorney, this man is extremely dangerous. And not only can I not help you, but I think, you know, we need to consider what steps should be taken to protect the public. The attorney said, thank you very much. I won't need a report and wanted to end it there. Mm. But the psychiatrist felt an obligation to go further, whether he should inform the judge. He consulted various attorneys and so forth, and it ultimately ended up in the Canadian Supreme Court. How do you balance your duty of confidentiality, both attorney client and patient physician against public safety? And the Canadian Supreme Court went even further than the Tarasoff case in the United States and said that if a mental health professional, a physician, or an attorney has knowledge that someone is likely to commit dangerous acts, they have an affirmative duty to let law enforcement know. So it actually is a broader Tarasoff duty, and it applies to all of Canada. So it began in a sexual torture case, so relevant to the topic of today. Hmm. Fascinating. One other comment I'll make to you, since you ask about my own reaction to these cases, is that there is a Canadian forensic psychiatrist 
named John Bradford. He's been public about this, but he's a highly experienced forensic psychiatrist with a special interest in sexual offenders who's evaluated hundreds and hundreds of them and treats them. So he's, you know, well into his 60s, has had a lifetime of this, but he was so affected by one case that he developed such severe post-traumatic stress disorder that he actually became suicidal and non-functional for a period of time. And the case involved a man who was a sexual torturer and he would tape record the screams of the victim while he tortured her and eventually killed. And in order to testify about whether he was going to be a dangerous offender, which is a particular law in Canada, he was required to listen to hour after hour of the sexual torture and the women screaming in both fear and pain and agony. And he, of course, Dr. Bradford knew the outcome was going to be their death. So when he listened to this, listened to their screams, knowing that they were going to be killed, it got to him at a level that all his prior cases did not. So this is actually an occupational hazard of forensic psychiatrists and those who treat sexual offenders and testify. And as I say, he's been open, he's got a YouTube hour on this. So I just mentioned this since you asked about effects on the examiners. I remember growing up, there was a case in Toledo, Ohio, that you seemed, at least at the time, to be highly impacted by. Can you talk about that case? Yes, that was one of my earlier cases. And when I dictated the report, my secretary was so disturbed by transcribing it that she had a minor case of post-traumatic stress disorder and with period of sleeplessness. The case involved a man who happened to be the son of a physician, and he worked in a hospital. He had a number of sexual deviations, including coprophilia, where he would take a sample of stool or urine from a patient and take them to the lab, and he would eat or swallow them on the way to the lab. And he would actually ask for extra samples so that they wouldn't turn up missing. I've had patients masturbate with feces or urine. It's actually a not so uncommon fetish called, you know, there's water sports, golden showers, all that. It's another trendy thing. Right. This man tied in these ideas with more of a sadism. And interestingly, he had sadistic pornography and he kept it in a crawl space. He was living with a girlfriend. She had no idea that he had these sadistic fantasies. He did on one occasion request anal sex, which she wasn't interested in, but he recognized the limits she set, but he had this need. He had a tarantula in a glass cage and kids would be very fascinated. So he would get children into his home so he had this five-year-old girl who was a neighbor just a few doors down and got her into his home where he killed her. He then was able to carry out his sexual drives. Again, he had necrophilia. He also had sex with bodies in the morgue, but this is the first live child that he killed. They canvassed the neighborhood and he kept the body up in this crawl space. 
and he did things to her body, such as cutting out her uterus, inserting it in his anus as stimulation to masturbate. And so he did a number of very peculiar, sadistic things in the way he killed her and then used her body. And again, he was indicted on this issue of killing a child in the course of raping a child. So this is one of my first very disturbing cases, as I say, where there was, my secretary had much more of a reaction than I did to it. I remember the case and I remember being frightened by it and hearing about the details as well. Did you have a role in the Scott Peterson murder trial? I did. Scott Peterson was convicted of killing his pregnant wife in California. And I was hired by the defense attorney and I did go and evaluate him. And the reason I was employed in that case was that he was shown on videotape and he did not show the kind of emotions one would expect when he said that his wife disappeared and was kidnapped. So the defense attorney had a theory that they might be able to explain his lack of emotions if they could show that the kidnapping of the wife caused some type of post-traumatic stress disorder in Scott Peterson, and that's why he appeared so numb and without emotions. I did interview him, and what he conveyed to me did not show post-traumatic stress disorder, and in fact, he revealed more background, which caused him to look more guilty rather than less guilty. So when I reported this to the defense attorneys, I simply was not used at trial, but a jury did convict him. So you were hired by the defense and could not be helpful? Right. I see. Can you speak for just a moment about the concept of legal insanity and how often lawyers attempt to use that defense? Yes, there is a lot of misconception because when there is an insanity trial that's contested, that is, there are experts on both sides, it is a dramatic experience. It is a morality trial, and there's a lot of press coverage, so that the public estimates over 20% of trials are insanity trials. In reality, insanity is only raised in 1% of felony trials, and it's only successful between 15 and 25% of the time. So it's really about only one or two out of a thousand felony cases where someone succeeds with insanity. Speaking of myths, do you have anything you can say about myths around rapists? Anything you can debunk there? Well, one common belief is that rapists are lacking a sexual partner. So sometimes people think, well, you know, if we made either prostitutes available or taught someone better social skills so they could pick up partners who were consenting, they'd be less likely to rape. But in reality, rapists need to rape. And even though they may have a partner available, they may be married, have an available sexual partner, the need is to terrify and take sex rather than simply have an available sexual partner. I find that true as well. Even with my male patients who are unfaithful, they often have wives and partners who are receptive to them sexually. 
and even open to whatever they're interested in. But there's something about the psychological dynamic of being with someone other than their partner who's available to them. Certainly, certainly. Infidelity is its own broad area as to what people get out of it. People assume that when someone's unfaithful, it's because they're not having sex in their relationship. But I find, I talk to a lot of wives of sex addicts and they say, we have sex regularly. I'm open to anything, we're very adventurous. And yet there's this separate need. So I'm sure with rapists, it's even much more complicated. When you mention that, I'm just reminded of one Italian man I saw in my office and he needed to have sex three times each day. Mm -hmm. And his wife was willing to go along with sex once a day. Mm -hmm. So he would have sex with her once a day, mm -hmm. masturbate once a day, mm -hmm. and be unfaithful once a day. Yeah, yeah. That's just one end of the spectrum of just a highly driven sexual yeah. partner. Yeah, I have many current cases very similar to that that I'm treating right now. Yeah. So I remember traveling with you when you would give lectures around the world, hearing you teach and talk about these cases. And I often feel like in your absence, I could get up and actually give one of these presentations. And you and I have actually spoken together as a father-daughter team on a number of occasions. And someone referred to us, I don't know if you remember this, someone referred to us as Sigmund and Anna Freud. And you said, I prefer Frank and Nancy Sinatra. Do you remember that? No. Yeah, you said that. So I like to tell people between the two of us, we have the id covered. You handle the murder, I handle the sex, and we get those libidinal impulses taken care of as a duo. Very good. Well, thank you, Dad, for sharing some of your insights. I know there are many other cases that you've played a role in, the Oklahoma City bombing and the Unabomber. You actually went into his cabin in the woods and read his manifesto and saw the typewriter that he typed it on. So you have lots of stories and many, many people are hoping you'll write a book one day. Well, thanks. It's been a pleasure to be interviewed by someone of such a close relationship. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dad. Well, thank you for joining me today on Sex Savvy and I'll see you tonight for dinner. All right. Bye now. You've been listening to Sex Savvy. If you find value in this podcast, please like, follow, share, comment, or review on your favorite podcast app. Your participation helps keep Sex Savvy free and available to all who are interested. Kimberly and the entire Sex Savvy team appreciate your loyalty and support.